Tonight's episode of Legacy Battle is brought to you by Atlas Benefits. Atlas Benefits has solutions for your insurance needs. Atlas Benefits can help you obtain Medicare, health, or life insurance, and employee benefits. You can find them on the web at www.atlasbenefits.com. Or you can contact Rob Ducey or Roy Smith at 727-600-2892 and mention Legacy Battle Podcast. Atlas Benefits has all the solutions for your insurance needs. Enjoy the show. Good evening. Welcome to Legacy Battle. Remember to catch us on YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, hit us up in the comments section. I am Michael Adams, creator of Legacy Battle. Here with me tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King from Steeler Nation South, Robert Cawthon, Penn State Collegiate All-Star, Kevin Adams. And our special guest tonight is one of the greatest swimmers of all time, he has four NCAA titles at USC, a bronze medal from the World Championships in 1973, and then, of course, at the 1976 Olympics, sets the world record in four different swimming events, winning gold medals in each of those, of course, and he picked up a silver in those Olympics. So we've got five-time medalist here. His website, you can check it out. It's johnneighbor.com. All kinds of great stuff. You can buy his books on there. He's a writer. He's a motivational speaker, a sports broadcaster. So, ladies and gentlemen, International Swimming Hall of Famer, John Neighbor. Yahoo! <laughs> Thank you for being here tonight. You bet. So, tonight's show is the greatest Olympic upset of all time. After the debate, we'll, we'll have our Q&A with John about his career. So, we're going to start out tonight with the Jamaican bobsled team. All right, the Jamaican bobsled team. I mean, it's if you would have talked about this prior to 1988, it, it almost seemed like an oxymoron. Like, you know, the, this is a tropical climated nation entering the winter games. You know, what, what's going on here? So, um, I mean, you had two Americans in Jamaica, George Finch and William Maloney. And they were inspired by the great athleticism of the Jamaican people. And they were really enthralled with the popularity of, of pushcart racing down there. And they saw that pushcart racing was similar in, in, in ways to, uh, to bobsledding. And they felt that this combination could, could produce winning, you know, winning team for bobsledding. Um, so they recruited Dudley Stokes, Devin Harris, Michael White, and Freddie Powell who had never even seen a bobsled until they began training in September of 1987 for the 1988 Olympics in Calgary. So this team was short on funding. Um, they were forced to use borrowed equipment. And despite the odds, they were able to qualify for this event. I mean, this was monumental because they looked like they didn't belong at all. And, and the equipment they were using was really inferior to everyone else's. 
So when they got to the real to the real runs, the first run ended pretty badly. Um, their their bar sled collapsed, but then their second run was amazing. Uh, they got off to a great start and they were traveling in excess of 85 miles an hour. Uh, but unfortunately, the sled crashed right before the finish line. Uh, that being said, they won over the hearts of Olympic fans everywhere, and they established themselves as regular competitors for years. In 1992. Team Jamaica returned and finished 25th. In 1994, they finished 14th ahead of the U.S., France, Australia, and Russia. In 1998, they took 21st place. In 2002 was a very cool year because they set an Olympic record with a 4.78-second push start segment time. So the very beginning where they pushed the, the bobsled off and all four men jump into it, they did that faster than anybody ever did in the history of bobsledding. Um, and then in, in 2018, the Jamaican women were, were inspired to form their own team. And they went to the Olympics and they finished 19th. So remember, it's one thing to perform at a high level when your country is already, you know, has an established presence in the Olympics. But it's another thing to do it when your nation has zero history in those games. And despite what people may think, John Candy was not their coach. No, just in the movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> John, everybody we're talking about tonight, except for this this first one, won a gold medal. So, I mean, do you feel that there there is an upset here, just the fact that they make it and they set a push start record? And what are your thoughts on 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 the Jamaican bobsled team? If I were to split hairs. Their upset, while significant, occurred before the Olympics, just to qualify to compete at the Olympics. They didn't upset the world at the Olympics, because once you get there, you're, you're a candidate. But to beat all the other nations, to get, there's a, there's a limited number of seats, uh, spots available at the Olympic Games. Not every country gets to enter a, a team. In fact, sure. you have to earn the right to compete as a team. And so the fact that they earn that right is amazing. Uh, naturally because of the lack of training facilities, the lack of history and tradition. But Jamaica is exceptionally strong in sprint, track, and field. They've got the muscles and the thighs that enable them to be a very fast cart-pushing team. So that didn't come as a huge surprise. But I think it was just the, the counter-cultural thing that made it interesting. I wouldn't call it an upset. I would call it a wonderful human interest story. Very nice. Kevin, you're all about the championships. Uh, you know, I've done enough shows with you. <laughs> so what are your thoughts with them not winning the gold? Uh, I mean, like like John just said, it, it is uh, a good story. I mean, it's an inspirational type type of story. I don't think they it's, it should be considered an upset either. Um, but, you know, Cold Running is one of my favorite movies, and um, you know you get you get inspired, you get pumped up when you watch that story and see it happen. And um, you know it's unfortunate that they crashed because um, you know they may have had a chance to place better, um, pretty high up. But um, yeah, I don't think it's an upset. I just think it's an inspirational story. Definitely inspirational. If memory, sorry, sorry, Mike. If memory serves me correctly, the four men carried their sled down the down the ramp and across the finish line demonstrating the, the never say die, the never quit attitude, which made them, that probably made them as popular as anything else. 
just they showed the right kind of spirit. And if you think back to Olympic history, you got Eddie the Eagle, the the oh, uh, the, um, the British uh, skier ski jumper, you know, who wasn't good compared to the rest of the field, but he took himself seriously. He took the event seriously, and he gave it his best. There was a swimmer called Eddie the Eel, who competed, I think, in in London, and was a minute slower than the rest of the field, but he gave it the best shot. These are wonderful human interest stories, um, but they don't go home with a medal. Right. Eddie the Eagle is a great movie. <laughs> Another good one. Yep. Another good one. <laughs> All right. We're going to go to the – Rudy was good too, yeah. <laughs> we're going to go to the year 2000. Oh, you're on mute, Rollo. So <clears> – <throat> One of the greatest upsets that I've ever seen personally um, or been a part of was uh, Rulon Gardner versus Alexander Carolyn. Uh, going into their match, Carolyn was by far the most dominant Greco-Roman wrestler in the games. He had won three straight gold medals. He had 13 years of not losing an international bout. He had six years where he didn't even lose a point, not one point. He was the most decorated wrestler. He had 35 gold medals. He was, I believe, 887 and one prior to that match. So, and Rulon Gardner, he had no medals. He had nothing. I mean, he was, he was a no-name. Like, even when he went into the match, he, he said in an interview that he went in believing that he was going for a silver medal. And for him to come out on top and beat Carolyn, who at the time was the most dominant wrestler in the sport, was an inspiration to a lot of people. I mean, he came out of nowhere and did what a lot of people for 13 years hadn't done. And only one person in his entire career had done. I mean, his first loss was in 87 and he didn't lose again until 2000. So that shows you how dominant Carolyn was in the sport of Greco-Roman wrestling. And and uh, Rulon Gardner was able to overcome that and win one nothing in their match and overcome. And it was truly, even though they were the same size, it was a David versus Goliath um, as far as achievements and accolades and accomplishments. It was truly a David versus Goliath match. And David came out on top and slayed Goliath. So I'm, I'm going to throw this out there about, about this fight. <laughs> Las Vegas says this is the biggest upset of all time. They had it at 2,000 to 1 odds. And wow. that is ranked number one in all time for United States, U.S. represented, you know, sporting events. And, uh, Kevin, I know you got the Miracle on Ice later we're going to talk about. They were only 1,000 to 1. So in, in, the, in those matches leading up to the, the, the gold medal, gold medal um, I believe that he won. I believe uh, Carolyn had won 3 nothing, 3 nothing, 4 nothing, 3 nothing heading into that match. Like, he dominated those matches heading into the gold medal match. And and Carolyn, I mean, uh, Rulon overcame overcame Goliath. John, obviously, uh, you know, I'd like your thoughts on on that that gold medal, of course. But what what are your thoughts about wrestling? You know, being taken out of the Olympics. Uh, wrestling was one of the four sports in the original ancient games. Uh, I think it has a great tradition, and I think the sport produces some of the greatest character individuals. The, the wrestlers are devoted. They're hardworking. Uh, it's the only sport in the Olympics where you literally have to compete without being allowed to eat. You know, you, <laughs> you got to cut weight. And, and I can't imagine doing a 
workout without wolfing down the calories necessary to, to, to produce the performance. So I have nothing but great respect for wrestlers, and I do hope that the sport remains on the Olympic program. It is one of the greats. Now, uh, Alexander Karelin, uh, one of the amazing things about him, uh, 286 pounds. They said he had a 2% body fat. <laughs> the, guy, the guy was awesome physically, and he was also um, uh, very cerebral. He played the violin. He listened to classical music. Interesting. I mean, he looks like a brute. He looks like a thug, but he wasn't. He was a really sharp guy. And he created uh, what's called the Corellan lift, which is a reverse body lift where in Greco-Roman wrestling, the official puts one athlete on the mat, the other one on top of him, and they get to wrestle for a while. And then they switch positions. And it sort of gives the officials a chance to see how people can score. The fact that Corellan was never scored upon even though he was placed in the submissive position, that tells you how remarkable he was. He got the gold medal over Matt Gaffari in 1996 in the gold medal match. And Gaffari said, I, you know, I didn't have a chance against this guy because he had this reverse body lift. Now imagine this. He reaches around his opponents when they're on the mat. He lifts them off the ground. He bumps them with his hip, raises their whole body over his shoulder, and then he pile drives their head into the mat. It's a pretty effective move. And Rulon Gardner, he was no slouch, the 11th of 11 uh, uh, kids on a, on a milk farm in Wyoming. He looked at Corellin and watched how he would work out. Corellin would do, you know, a body uh, uh, exercise, body lifts with the barbells. For like two hours, he'd watch TV and the barbells would never stop moving, 40 pounds in each hand. I mean, he, he, he would hold his arms out and he would twist his arms holding these barbells and the muscles in his arms were like the sinew of a cat gut on a tennis racket, real tight. And Corellin uh, was intimidating to the rest of the world. And that's probably why the betters wagered so much money on him. But Rulon Gardner said, I need a plan to beat this guy. I'm never gonna be stronger than Corellin. So what Rulon did is he developed more endurance. He wrestled nine minute periods in workout. He had multiple sparring partners, a workout called a shark attack, where one person would throw a move on him and he'd fight that guy off. And then immediately another person would come on and he'd fight that guy off. And Rulon built up his endurance. And he also realized the moment Corellin gets me off the ground with this reverse body lift, all I have to do is move a leg out to the side. It throws the balance off and Corellin will have to set me down, replant his feet, lift me a second and a third and maybe a fourth time. And that's exactly what happened in the gold medal bout. Rulon outlasted Corellin. They were zero to zero at the end of regulation. They had to go into overtime and the two of them were in a mutual bear hug when Corellin's fingertips just slipped. And that was the one point for an escape that, uh, that uh, Rulon got and that was the margin of victory. And that uh, sealed the deal for indeed one of the greatest upsets in history. Rulon Gardner is a friend of mine and a, a, a sweet, innocent guy who was in the right place at the right time and had the right plan to beat what would what Las Vegas called an unbeatable foe. It was this might be my vote for the best upset in Olympic history. Brian, let me, let me ask you. We talked about uh, another wrestler on a prior Olympic show, Kurt Angle. You know, this is the biggest upset by far. But I think a lot of people still think of Kurt Angle before they think of Gardner. I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I mean, it's 
pretty simple because of the, you know, what he did after his, his career at the Olympics. I mean, he, you know, he became, you know, went to the WWE and, and, you know, so much popularity. He's one of the most popular wrestlers in that, um, you know, in that federation for sure. And so, uh, you know, it's just a matter of getting, you know, getting his name out that way, that, that kind of recognition. Now, you know, you know, had, had Gardner done, had he taken that same route after wrestling, then, you know, he, he would probably be up there too. Kevin, you were, you were our, our wrestler, you know, you, uh, John talked about, you know, not eating, keeping weight. Uh, how hard was that for you? Yeah, I remember uh, sitting in class in high school and uh, you'd have a bottle, a water bottle sitting there uh, and you'd be spitting it all day. If you spit in a water bottle all day, you lose at least one pound. Um, it was kind of, it, it is pretty uh, strict and, and stringent. And, um, you, you do not want to miss your weight because if you do, uh, you're, you're going to be in, in deep stuff <laughs> with your coach. So, I mean, it's, it is very strict when, when you wrestle, um, you know, Carol, uh, Carol and his, his thigh was like as big as my midsection. Like that dude was a beast. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, he had won that event three consecutive times, uh, in the Olympics. Um, this was supposed to be his fourth, um, and, uh, Gardner, you know, lost to him previously, um, and had only placed as high as fifth in the world uh previous to to that those olympics so uh you know i know we're trying to fight for our own thing but i will say that this this is a pretty big upset uh to say the least i, I would like to add that gardner may have told somebody that he was fighting for silver but i know he told me that he thought he could win gold he may have been the only person in the arena who thought he was going to win but he thought he was going to win he went in with the purpose of, of beating Corellin, which I don't think many others do. Many other wrestlers went in there and said, I just want to get out alive. You know, maybe I'll score a point, but I just want to, I just don't want to get hurt. And and you go into a match with that attitude and you're bound to lose. Whereas Rulon's attitude made the difference. It also saved Rulon's life in 2002 when Rulon uh, uh, was on a snowmobile in the wilderness in the winter and the machine uh, it died on him. He had to spend all night outdoors in sub-freezing temperatures. He got frostbite on his foot, but he survived because he refused to give up. And then he came back after um, after uh, uh, Sydney to win a bronze medal in the same event in uh, Athens, 2004. I did not know the frostbite thing. That is a great story. Uh, Very either. cool. Yeah. Very cool. All right, let's go back in time to 1980. So Gardner was probably, it might be, you know, the top biggest upset, but this one I think is just as big and the impact on the country was far greater. So Miracle on Ice, you all know it, ice hockey game against uh, the Soviet Union in 1980, New York, Lake Placid Olympics. Um, the winner would go on to play for the gold medal. Uh, Soviet Union was a four-time uh, defending gold medalist um, and heavily favored uh, against USA. Um, United States upset them and won four to three. You know, they would go on later uh, to end the fairy tale story uh, with a victory over Finland. And it was a comeback fashion against them as well uh, to win the gold. So this was huge. This was, this was right at the time uh, when the Cold War was going on between USA and Russia. You know, the United States needed this victory. Um, the Soviet Union uh, almost didn't come over for the Olympics. Uh, due to the Cold War, they were going to, you know, boycott it because it was here in America. Um, in, in exhibitions that year, the Soviet Union had actually 
routed, man, the, the NHL All-Star team, 6 nothing, uh to win the Challenge Cup that they played for. And then the last exhibition between uh, the Soviets and USA, Soviets destroyed us, 10-3. to It wasn't even close. And, I mean, you look at the Soviet Union, they had one gold five of the six previous Winter Olympics. Um, and they were, they were obviously the favorites to win this one. Uh, their team was full of professionals, uh, had a crazy amount of international experience. Team USA, they were made up of a bunch of amateurs, mainly college players. They had four players with minimal minor league experience. Uh, they were the youngest team in the history of USA for hockey and in that tournament. Uh, both them and the Soviet Union went unbeaten in the, the group stage. Um, uh, USA surprised everybody. They tied Sweden. Uh, they upset uh, Czech, Czechoslovakia, who was the second favorite uh, to win the Olympic gold medal. Uh, USA and, and Soviet Union, we traded goals in the first period. Um, USA actually ended up tying it with a second left. Um, and this is where it was interesting because at that moment, Russia made a decision to pull possibly one of the best goalies in the world after we tied it 2-2 at the end of the first. I mean, both teams were shocked. Even Russia was shocked uh, that, they, um, that they pulled their goalie. Um, second period, uh, Soviet Union took over. They controlled the game, outshot us 12-2. They scored a goal to take the lead 3-2. And then in the third period, you know, we were on the power play. We scored a goal eight, about eight and a half minutes in. Um, then we scored our fourth goal with 10 minutes left, and then it was just the rest of the game grinding, hustling for the puck, fighting them off, holding them off. Um, you know, <sighs> Russia, I don't think they were they were expecting this. Uh, they've never really played from behind that much. Um, and to not pull the goalie, even one of their players, uh, Sterikov, said, we've never practiced six on five because our coach didn't believe in it, and we never really had the opportunity to be a six on five. Um, you know, so got down to the final minute, berated with shots, the countdown began, and TV announcer Al Michaels, he coined, do you believe in miracles? And that's how this all became Miracle on Ice. 1999 Sports Illustrated named it Miracle on Ice. It was the top sports moment of the 20th century. Um, as part of its centennial celebration in 2008, the International Ice Hockey Federation named Miracle on Ice the best international ice hockey story of the past 100 years. There have been many things in pop culture about this game. ESPN did 30 for 30, uh, but they showed the Soviets' view of things. Uh, Disney made the movie Miracle. Uh, there was a TV movie called Miracle on Ice, and HBO did a documentary film, Do You Believe in Miracles? The country needed this. It happened at that time during the Cold War. It rallied our country together, and it's definitely had the biggest impact, I think, out of all the, the events that we're talking about tonight. It had the biggest in, impact on the United States. John, that, that's hard to argue that it had the biggest impact. But, I mean, you were in the Olympics in 76, four years prior. I'm sure there was a lot of Russia-USA stuff going on at that time as well. So what were your thoughts on this hockey game that really changed changed the United States in a lot of ways? I'm going to guess all of you are significantly younger than me because <laughs> you probably don't remember the historical significance of 1980 that wasn't Russia we were competing against, it was the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union used sport to promote their political ideology around the world. If we can beat America on the ice, that means our, our communism is better than capitalism. And there was they were making that point around the world. At the same time, the Soviet Union had recently invaded Afghanistan 
And the Americans told them that you got to get out. You cannot invade a sovereign nation. The Russians, the, the Soviets ignored us, which eventually led to America boycotting the Moscow 1980 Olympic Games that were scheduled only six months later. As a result, the Winter Olympics in Lake Placid on American soil was the meeting of the two superpowers. At the time, China was not a superpower. The Soviet Union and the United States were the superpowers, not only in the race for space, but also the world of sport, Olympic sport. And so there was an awful lot riding on this. Now, what makes this fun for me and what makes it a, a, an upset for you is that you think that nobody thought America could win. But that's not true. Every one of the American players thought they could win. They knew they would lose eight out of 10 times, nine out of 10 times, but they went onto the ice thinking today is our day. And coach uh, Herb Brooks uh, convinced them of that. And that's another wonderful story because the young athletes, I should point out, I told you that Jamaica didn't automatically qualify the bobsled. Not every nation gets to enter a team in every team sport. You have to qualify in a worldwide tournament. But the host country does get to put a team in every team event. And as a result, United States hosting the Lake Placid Olympics, the American hockey players knew well in advance, regardless of how well they would do in the years leading up to the Olympics, they were going to get to compete in the Olympics. And this gave them a little bit more enthusiasm and the ability to postpone a professional career to focus on the Olympics. And there were two, two bodies of athletes, a bunch from the Boston, New England area, and a bunch from Wisconsin. And Coach Brooks had to put these two very different groups together. And what he did is he, instead of making them like each other, he made them all hate him. <laughs> he was such a taskmaster on the ice, blowing this whistle and making them go shuttle runs back and forth. Uh, Mike Ruzioni told me he almost threw up after every workout. They just grind, they grueling, uh, 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 punished the, the athletes until they could barely speak to each other. And yet they grew together as a team. As, as uh, Ruzioni said, it was the name on the back of the jersey that meant more, uh, you know, the USA meant more than, than any individual number or name. It was the team captain, Mike Ruzioni, that scored the go-ahead goal, but a lot of credit belongs to the goalie, uh, Jim Craig. Jim Craig was in the middle of a shooting gallery because the Russians controlled the puck and outshot the Americans by a ridiculous score. But Jim Craig never took his eye off the puck. He stopped them all, and he kept the Americans in it until the final moments. And you might remember when the game was over, uh, Craig was the one who, who uh, shrouded himself in the American flag. And one of my favorite stories is that the awards ceremony had room for one athlete to receive a medal on behalf of the whole team. And Mike Rizzioni, as captain, came over. Everyone received their medal one at a time, but he came forward last. And then he turned back and he called the whole team to join him on that podium built for one. And they could barely hang on. They were holding on to each other so they wouldn't fall off the podium. This was uh, the United States of America. And because it meant so much to so many people, the stadium I hear held 8,000 spectators. And I think I personally met 22,000 who said they were there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that ticket's worth a pretty penny. <laughs> yeah. So, Rollo, Kevin mentioned that uh, 
the Soviet Union had beaten the NHL All-Stars 6 nothing. To me, that sounds, in theory, a lot better than what it actually was. Beating an All-Star team, in my opinion, those guys don't play together every day. You know, it's not it's not a team. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's much harder to beat a team that doesn't play together all the time because you don't have that cohesion, and especially a game like hockey where there's a lot of stuff that goes into line changes and passing the puck and building rapport and, and the di- different ends. So, you know, that 6 nothing score over an all-star team, <clears throat> I think it's a little inflated because of who they were playing. Yeah. And Brian, this wasn't the gold medal game. A lot of people think that it was the gold medal game. It, it was not. It, it was the game to get to the gold medal game. They eventually beat uh, Finland 4-2. to the Finns of all people <laughs> make it to. Do you do you think if this had been the gold medal game? I mean, it's already huge, but would it, would it have been even bigger in your opinion? Uh, it it would have been, I guess, a little bit bigger. But it was like it almost seemed like that gold medal game was sort of formality. I mean, you you took out what the United States took out the you know the, the big guys on the block. You know, and no disrespect to Finland, but I mean, you took out the guys that have won what was it four straight Olympics. I mean, it was like you know. It, it sort of felt, it felt like once you did that, the rest of it was just, uh, you know, uh, was a formality at that point. Right. Remember remember when I said that the host country gets to enter an Olympic team in every team sport? Yeah. Prior to 1980, the last time America won a gold medal in hockey was when the Winter Olympics were in Salt Lake City. I, not <laughs> Salt Lake, in, uh, in uh, Squaw Valley in 1964. Once again, America hosting the games, getting the team on the ice. I just want to point out and reiterate that this was a group of amateur college players against a professional Russian team that had played together for years. And a bunch of them were NHL, went on to play NHL games. Some of them played over a thousand NHL games. Some of them won Stanley Cups. Like this was complete underdog. So, kids. so did a lot of the amateur players, though, for the USA. Neil Broughton played over a thousand games. Mike Ramsey, you know, that. Most of that team went to the NHL as well. Just saying. True. But they were also just fresh out of college. Didn't have that experience yet. The Russians had it, had the experience. That's, that's true. That's true. And All the right. Americans had the hometown advantage. Everybody in the arena was cheering for Team USA. It's true. That's true. Yep. True. All right. We're going to move to our, our final upset, which is going to be all the way back to 1972. And it's, uh, again, the Soviet Union versus the United States. Um, I hope that all of you will throw your American bias out the window for this one because this upset belonged to the Soviets. So let me just start with this. Basketball started in Olympics uh, 1936, and that was won by the U.S. as well as 48, 52, 56, 60, 64, 68. And in 76, all won by the United States of America. Um, no American men's basketball team had ever lost an Olympic play. They had won 63 games in a row going into this gold medal game against the Soviet Union. That is an insane 63 straight wins. Final score of this game was 51-50. Um, you know, the last three seconds have been debated 
countless amount of times as to, you know, how legit the game ended or whatever. But, you know, the Soviet Union should even have been in the game. They should have been blown out based off of everything prior. At the game prior, the United States won by 30 points. So, you know, just the fact that they're in it in the last few seconds says a lot. But I, I, I want to take it from this standpoint. So the United States, they didn't – they felt that they got – the shaft basically uh, by the referees and that they should have won this game and they didn't show up to the ceremony for the medals given out. And they still to this day have never accepted their silver medals. They're over in, in Sweden or something and locked up in a, in a bank or something like that. But you got to look at this from the Russian perspective. This is their miracle on ice or, or, or miracle on the court, I guess we could call it. Um, you know, all of, all of those players are considered heroes in the Soviet Union. Um, the players and officials from that game, they see it as a just victory. And, and they, they think that the United States should have, you know, accept the loss, basically. Uh, you know, um, and then I got, there's a, a San Diego, UC San Diego professor, Robert Edelman. He wrote a book and uh, he's an expert in Russian sports. And he says, when you take the last three seconds of that game, and you look at it in detail, it was fair. Mistakes were made along the way, but they were corrected before the game was over. So the final outcome was what it should have been when we when we look at it from that, that standpoint. You know, and the, the Russian athletes, they're, they're insulted that, that the U.S. has never accepted this loss. And it still goes on today. They still make shows about this, um, and, and they're still, still mad about that. But, you know... We're not here today to vote on who we like more or, you know, United States, USA. We're here to vote on what the biggest upset is. This is a huge upset. When you're beating a team that has won 63 games in a row, has won every Olympic medal in the sports history, pretty much, um, you know, that that is a big, big upset. Um, and I know somebody's going to – throw those last three seconds of the game at me here in a minute, but <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to come to you, John. I, you know, this was four years before you went to the Olympics, but you know, what, what are your thoughts on how the game ended? And, and do you think it was a fair victory? Uh, they did not replay the last three seconds. Once they replayed it twice. And the, and the official who put the seconds back on the clock was not, in the rule book, allowed to do so. It would be as if the commissioner of the sport came down and called a ball or a strike at the World Series. And as a result, the athletes, the American athletes, I think, have a reason to complain because they were leading. They did win when the clock ran out the first time. They did win when the clock ran out the second time, and they lost when the clock ran out the third time. Now, I don't think this is as big an upset. It, it certainly upset a lot of Americans to lose to the Soviet Union. But think about it. Of all the teams in the tournament, the one team most likely to beat the Americans was the Soviet team. And therefore, for them to rise to the occasion, I don't think is an upset. Here's an upset. In 2004, Puerto Rico beat the United States professional basketball players 92 to 73. That's an upset. 
That is on our shout-outs, the uh, 04 men's basketball team, actually. That's an upset. I don't think losing to the Soviets is that big of a surprise. It was the way it happened made it so criticized that everybody talks about it. But I, I don't think that's as big an upset as, as, it, as you might make it out to be. Well, that, that 04 men's team, I mean, they were missing. There was a lot of players that didn't come over and play for the U.S. for many, many reasons, uh, Shaq being one of them. Um, but I, I digress. Brian, Kevin, Rollo, anyone want to jump in on your thoughts on how the game ended or or, or the possible upset? Well, well, to, well, the uh, the Soviets did use professional players that they listed as uh, uh, workers and students to get around the amateur rule. So they had their best players in their nation on the court when the, U the U.S. could not. So <clears throat> was that skirting the rules and making it, you know, favorable for, for, the, for the Soviet Union? A little bit. Yeah, and the USA team was, again, the youngest uh, in the history of the United States basketball team. Um, you know, they usually, for USA, you you'd play in the Olympics at least one time before you turn pro. Um, so... United States always had new players every four years, whereas Russia, they had been playing for more than seven years together, that team, and they only beat USA by one. I mean, I, it looks like their road to the final was a little bit easier, too, with the Soviets. Uh, they, they beat Puerto Rico by 13 points. They beat Cuba by five. Um, you know, they, they had more experience, um, again, and they only beat us by one point, and it seems like it was uh, – a a shaft play. If I can have you consider a couple of other American losses in the Olympics that are, in my opinion, far more of an upset. In 2008, rather in 2005, the sport of softball and baseball were taken out of future Olympics because America was so consistently dominant that no other country could possibly win. And in 2008, the last time it was scheduled to appear, the American women trounced everybody in the early rounds, beating Japan 7-0 in the early rounds and beating them again 4-1 in the semifinals. But when it came to the gold medal match, Japan beat the American women 3-1. That was a shocker for the rest of the world and to the U.S. women as well. And one last team I'd recommend for an upset, Serena and Venus Williams, multiple-time Olympic champions in the doubles, they lost in the first round in 2016 to a pair from the Czech Republic. <laughs> That's an upset. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's go on to our trivia question tonight. Put your answers in the Facebook comments section. We'll get you your prize mailed out if you get it. Two men that we have debated on prior shows have lit the Olympic torch. Name them both and the sports that they dominated in. So that's a pretty easy question if you watch the show for a while. <laughs> so before we vote, um, shout-outs. Uh, obviously, John just threw some out there. Uh, we got 90, 1998, uh, Lipinski beating Michelle Kwan. That was a big upset in the Olympics. He already mentioned the 2004 U.S. men's basketball team. You know, that them not winning gold in general is, is an upset. And then Belarus beats Sweden. That was in a hockey game. That was in a preliminary round. But Belarus's odds of winning the Olympic gold was 10 million to one. So that's a pretty big upset. If it had happened maybe in a, in a medal round or something, I'm sure it would 
get more hype than what it does. But so let's move on to our vote. Brian, we'll let you start it out. Well, I'm I'm going to go with uh, Rulon. Um, I'm really impressed with you know what I heard about him. Um, I, I remember it going down and then just sort of revisiting it just now. Uh, that really was a David versus Goliath uh, type thing there. And, and then I like I like the analysis that John brought about the, he, him being the only one believing that he could do it. And he, he and he did it. He pulled it off. Okay. Rollo? I'm going to have to go with the Miracle on Ice <clears throat> so because, you know, I was little. I was a little kid when uh, that happened. But when I got older, I finally actually got to watch the actual broadcast and then watch the entire game. Man, I felt I felt so proud. Like it, like it happened like like fifteen years later when I watched it. I was like, this. I was so proud of what happened. And then Al might hear Al Michaels make that call. <clears throat> it struck a nerve with me. Kevin. <clears throat> yeah, I'm gonna have to go with uh, Rulon Gardner as well. Okay. I'm I'm going with Rulon as well. If it's good enough for Vegas, it's good enough for me. Two thousand to one odds is that that says a lot. You know, I always like to go be about the money on these shows, so I'm voting for Gardner. So that's three for Gardner. John, anybody you want your vote? Well, uh, if I have to choose between the miracle or Rulon, I'm going to go with Rulon. Uh, the miracle affected a lot more people. Michael Ruzioni was once asked, if your team had lost in Lake Placid, what would you be doing now? He said, I'd be tending Ba. <laughs> I'd be a bartender. You know, it changed the lives of every one of those individuals. And all of us were affected. I, I, I remember where I was when the shuttle uh, exploded, um, the Challenger exploded in, in the sky. I remember where I was when America beat the Russians. I don't remember where I was when America won the gold in Lake Placid. Right. I mean, those are the things that affect the world. But in all fairness, Rulon had less of a chance to beat Karelin. Karelin had less of a chance of losing than did the Soviet Union hockey team in 1980. So I'm going to go with Rulon. But I would also like to shout out a couple of uh, of uh, honorable mentions. Yeah. Billy Mills, the Na Billy Mills, the Native American runner in the 10th America's only uh, 10,000 meter gold medalist in history came out of nowhere to win in, uh, uh, in Tokyo and the officials had to come ask him what his name was because they had never heard of him. They didn't even know who he was. Wow. That, that is, that is, that's how big of an upset that was. Uh, Sarah Hughes winning the gold over Michelle Kwan and Arena Slutskaya in, in, uh, in Salt Lake City. She was finished fourth after the short program and so many different things had to happen for her to win the gold medal, and they did. And uh, she was a name that nobody knew going into the no, – very few people knew going into the games. And everybody, of course, remembers coming out of the games. Um, my, my last one is the only athlete I've ever heard of to win a gold medal and not believe it to be true. And I'm referring to what happened in the recent uh, Olympics, uh, the 2018 Winter Games, uh, Esther Ledeka from the Czechoslovakian team. She was a snowboarder favored to win a medal, but she jumped into the Super G Alpine ski race event on a lark. And in skiing, they let the top 20 seeds go first and tear up the course. And then they let the rest of the field compete. And she was going 39th or something. And, 
and the announcers had already given the gold medal to somebody else. And over a rutted course, she comes through. Her time is better than anybody else on, on that day. And the announcers came up and said, you won, you won. And she said, no, no, it can't be. <laughs> she not only didn't expect to win, she didn't believe it after it had happened. So to me, that's a big upset as well. Awesome. Uh, all right, Brian, go ahead. First question. Okay. Um, so, John, you were part of the organizing committee for the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. So what was that like? And how did you deal with the, the, the boycott from the, the uh, communist bloc nations? Um, we, we had an inkling that the communists were going to boycott us the moment we announced we were going to boycott them. The host country gets about seven years to put on an Olympics. So the LA games in 84 were already three years into our period when America boycotted Moscow. So we were afraid we were waiting for that second shoe to drop. Uh, Peter Ubroth, as you may recall, was voted uh, Time Magazine's man of the year because of the way he professionally and efficiently and effectively managed the 1984 Olympics. I should note that the international Olympic movement, by many people's opinion, was almost dead on arrival because only two countries bid for the right to host the 1984 Olympics, Los Angeles and Tehran. Oh, wow. Iran. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, nobody wanted to go to Iran. Los Angeles basically won because they were the only country who were who was in the running for those games. And if you think about it, that was true in 1932, during the worldwide depression, LA came to host the games, was the only city bidding. And in 2028, remember the rules were changed so that Paris would get 24 and LA got 28 Olympics without a, without a bid. So in three occasions, LA won without actually defeating anybody. But then in all cases, they put on the best Olympics of history, Peter Ubroff, was able to reinvigorate the movement with professional sponsorships, with uh, higher ticket prices, a better TV deal. He generated a surplus for the first time in Olympic history and um, uh, he reinvented the movement. So to answer your question, when the Soviet Union said they were gonna boycott and they convinced a lot of other countries to boycott as well, they did not convince Romania and they did not convince the People's Republic of China. Those two communist countries came, and when they came, they got a standing ovation at the opening ceremonies because these were two countries that were willing to go against the Soviet Union's superpower political influence. And as a result, America won a whole bunch more medals because the communists were not there. But you know what? Nobody complained. Nobody asked for their money back. Nobody tuned out to tell, but everybody watched Mary Lou Retton even though some Russian gymnasts might have beaten her, they don't care. She got a perfect 10 on the vault. She won the gold, and that's all we needed to know. Carl Lewis wins four gold medals. That's all we need to know. And as a result, in retrospect, boycotts don't work. They punish athletes. They punished us in 1980, punished the communists in 84. And already people are talking about, let's boycott the 2022 Winter Olympics in China because of their government stand against the Uyghurs, the genocide. And I say, stop everybody. Let's put, a, put our field, put our team on the field and let us beat them. Let us show the world that our system is better. Let us show the world our individuals are better. And let's not talk about boycotts ever again. Rollo, go ahead. 
let me just start out by saying how much of an honor it is to be talking to a gold medalist and a world record former world record holder. This is a this is awesome. But uh, <clears throat> you won golds and broke world records in individual and team events. Which one mattered to you more? Was it the team gold or the individual gold? Uh, wow. Um, I think had I lost an individual event, I probably would have lost to another American. Had I lost in the relay event, America would have lost a gold medal to another country. So you could argue that the relays matter more than individual races, at least from my point of view. The interesting question is, of all my five races, which one meant the most to me or, or of which one was I most proud? And you might be surprised that it was the silver medal I won in the 200 freestyle because nobody saw me as a silver medalist. Sports Illustrated did a feature on me a month before and said, if everything goes right, neighbor could win three gold medals at the Olympics because they thought of me as a backstroker only. But at the Olympics, I swam the 200 freestyle 45 minutes after swimming the 100-meter backstroke to a world record. And so getting a silver medal in, in such a short period of time after the gold, to me, was a great performance. And I'm, I'm really most pleased of all the races. That is the one that exceeded my expectations. Kevin? <clears throat> so I saw that you lived in um, Europe uh, when you were a kid. And you played, it looks like, cricket and soccer while you were over there. Do you think uh, you would have gotten into swimming sooner? I know you started at age around age 13. Do you think you would have gotten in sooner if you weren't in Europe? Because I know, of course, cricket and soccer are huge in England and, and definitely in Italy, soccer is huge. Do you think you would have gotten started earlier and maybe had a different line of career? Like, do you think you would have done more in swimming? You know, it's possible. I do believe that all things work together for good. Uh, and, and so I look back to see why God planned my life the way he did. Had I been raised in the United States, I certainly would have had a lot more experience with ball handling skills. My hand-eye coordination was never developed. Uh, when I did return to the United States in time for my freshman year in high school, because of my height, I was the first kid picked for the PE basketball team. On the second day of high school PE, I was the last kid picked for the basketball team because I can't dribble, shoot, pass, uh, I, I got nothing. I got the standing vertical leap of lawn furniture. I'm not even the best athlete in my own family. But for some reason, I was able to discover swimming. And had I started sooner, I think I might have burnt out. Yeah. Uh, the fact that I started so late, I was one of the most enthusiastic swimmers on the team, waving at the crowd, having fun, going to all the workouts. Um, I probably would have been a different guy had I been swimming since age seven, as were many of my competitors. For them, this was old hat. So um, I, it's possible that I would have set more age group records, but I'm not sure I would have done better at the Olympic level. So you're still considered one of the best swimmers of all time, but athletes today have like a real advantage over athletes from your time period as far as training and what we know about diets and things like that and, and perfecting the body. So I just kind of wanted to get like, what were your thoughts on your records being broken and just pretty much how much the United States just 
dominates in swimming nowadays. Okay. Uh, there's a couple of items in the mix here. Uh, number one, uh, I was one of the last, I competed on one of the last Olympic teams that was required to be 100% amateur. There was no professionalism in the 1970s and very little professionalism in the 1980s. But in the 1990s, even swimmers got to have a little per diem. They got to have monthly stipends. They were allowed to do endorsements, make speaking fees, and then eventually prize money. So it's easier for athletes today to devote themselves 100%. I was a full-time student and a resident advisor in the dormitory. I was planning on retiring a year after uh, I swam in the Olympics because that's when my scholarship ran out. I had to get Reuben bored by getting a job. So um, it, it was a different world then. Um, the athletes today have more resources, um, more support, um, and therefore they get to swim in multiple games. You know, very rarely, Mark Spitz only swam on two Olympic teams. I only swam on one. Don Showlander, two teams. Donna Deverona, two teams. Now you got Michael Phelps and Jason Lezak and Katie Ledecky is heading for her third where she'll win medals and all, gold medals and all. So it, it is a different world. Now, you asked what it was like to, to finally lose my world record. It happened seven years after my Olympics. And to be honest with you, the, the field kept getting closer and closer and closer and closer. So it didn't come as a surprise that American from New York, Rick Carey, broke both my 100 and 200 backstroke records at the Nationals in Clovis, California in 1983. The, the way I describe it is, is like I had a baby tooth that was loose and I was playing with it, and I was sort of twisting with it. And when the records broke, hey, that was the that was the root that that popped. The nerve popped, and now it left an opening for me to fill that void with something else. As long as I was the world record holder, people would say, "John, why don't you get back in the pool? Why don't you go back and race these guys? You'd still be winning today." And to be honest with you, that that, that idea was in the back of my mind. But once the records fell. I was liberated. I, I graduated to the role of what I call a swammer. I'm no longer a swimmer. I'm a swammer. And I feel good about that. And, it was, and, and as a broadcaster, it was important for me to make that break. No longer part of the team of the athletes in the water. Now I'm part of the broadcast team in the booth, which allowed me to, to be a little bit more candid in my commentary and my opinions. So all in all, I think everything happened for a reason at the right time in my life. And I've got no complaints. Well, before we let you go, can you tell us about your two books, The Power of Character and Awaken the Olympian Within? Well, uh, actually, uh, The Power of Character, I was a contributing author on that one, so I don't even okay. call that my book. Uh, the first <laughs> book is Awaken the Olympian Within, and uh, maybe I ought to turn off the screen save so it doesn't... Uh... If you hold it right in front of you, it'll work. There Does you that go. Work? Yep. You can get it. Okay. Yeah. Awaken the Olympian Within. Basically, here, I was doing a lot of motivational speaking. And uh, I didn't have a whole book's worth of stories to tell, but I knew a lot of other Olympic athletes. And so I called them and said, do you have a little story to tell about what sport taught you about how to be successful in the real world, life after sport? And so we've got articles in here or uh, essays in here by Mike Ruzioni, the captain of the hockey team, um, by, uh, by Terry Schroeder, the water polo player, Karch Karai, the great volleyball player, Nadia Komenich. Uh, Milt Campbell, the decathlon champion, Dick Fosbury, 
doing the flop. Some of the great stories were in here. And uh, uh, we sold this, or we sold a bunch of these at a lot of uh, speaking events. Each of us took boxes of this book to wherever we were doing speeches and we sold them afterwards. I don't think you can find it on Amazon anymore. It's out of print. The other book is called Eureka, How Innovation Changes the Olympics and Everything Else. In 2004, the games were in, uh, in Athens, Greece. Xerox was the official Olympic sponsor, the technology sponsor. And they wanted to make the point that they were the most innovative of the Olympic sponsors. So they wanted to publish a book about innovations throughout Olympic history. And so you get here how Dick Fosbury created the flop or how the American bobsledders used the Bodine technology to create the night train that went on to win gold or how uh, Mitch Gaylord invented a move, a double, double a somersault over the high bar. The, you know, innovation, it's interesting, when I was doing research for the book, the, the two most innovative industries in the world are sport and the military. And the reason is, in both cases, you really don't want to finish second. <laughs> I, you don't want to finish second in a war. And therefore, we're constantly creating new technology, new devices, new weapons. And the same is true in sport. And so you've got David Burkhoff inventing the underwater dolphin kick in the backstroke. So he swam underwater the entire length of the first of the two lengths of the backstroke. Or um, there, there's hundreds of examples of innovations. Mostly, I would suggest in figure skating and gymnastics, when a double, uh, a double spin used to get great points, you got to do a triple. And now that everybody's doing a triple, you got to do a quad. You know, the, the, the world keeps escalating. And uh, I think that that's a good thing. You know, change is the only constant. And I love to see the fact that in sport, people are always being very innovative. I saw some used copies of The Awaken on, on Amazon, I thought, earlier today when I was looking around. So it's possible there's still some on maybe, there. Maybe on eBay. Maybe it was eBay? Okay. Yeah. When, I, when I Googled it, it come up. But so I just want to remind everybody, check out his website, johnneighbor.com. You can find out more information about him and, and everything that he does. We want to thank you for coming on. We, we really appreciate it. I love doing these Olympic shows. They, they, they mean a ton to me. I, I'm a huge Olympic fan. And I want to thank everyone who's been watching. Remember to check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Sign up for all of them. The more, the merrier. So everyone have a great night, and thank you for watching. Come friend me on Facebook. I'll, I'll click you back. <laughs> all right, all right. Thanks for joining.